Section 6 of Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth, Volumes 1 and 2, by Lucy Aiken. Chapter 4. 1547-1549, Part 2. Perry, in that part of his confession where he relates what passed between himself and the Lord Admiral when he waited upon him by his lady's command, takes notice of the earnest manner in which the admiral had urged her endeavouring to procure by way of exchange certain crown lands which had been the queen's and seemed to have been adjacent to his own from which he says he inferred that he wanted to have both them and his lady for himself he adds that the admiral said he wished the princess to go to the duchess of somerset and by her means make suit to the protector for the lands and for a town-house and quote, to entertain her grace for her furtherance end quote that when he repeated this to her elizabeth would not at first believe that he had said such words or could wish her so to do but on his declaring that it was true quote, she seemed to be very angry that she should be driven to make such suits and said in faith i will not come there nor begin to flatter now her spirit broke out according to turret with still greater vehemence on the removal of mrs ashley whom lady turret succeeded in her office the following is the account which he gives of her behaviour pleaseth it your grace to be advertised that after my wife's repair hither she declared to the lady elizabeth's grace that she was called before your grace and the council and had a rebuke that she had not taken upon her the office to see her well governed in the lieu of mrs ashley her answer was that mrs ashley was her mistress and that she had not so demeaned herself that the council should now need to put any more mistresses unto her whereunto my wife answered seeing she did allow mrs ashley to be her mistress she need not to be ashamed to have any honest woman to be in that place. She took the matter so heavily that she wept all that night and lowered all the next day, till she received your letter, and then she sent for me and asked me whether she was best to write to you again or not. I said if she would make answer that she would follow the effect of your letter, I thought it well done that she should write. But in the end of the matter I perceived that she was very loath to have a governor, and to avoid the same said the world would note her to be a great offender, having so hastily a governor appointed her and all is no more she fully hopes to recover her old mistress again the love she yet beareth her is to be wondered at i told her if she would consider her honour and the sequel thereof she would considering her years make suit to your grace to have one rather than to make delay to be without one one hour she cannot digest such advice in no way but if i should say my fantasy it were more meet she should have two than one she would in any wise write to your grace wherein i offered her my advice which she would in no wise follow but write her own fantasy she beginneth now a little to droop by reason she heareth that my lord admiral's houses be dispersed and my wife telleth me now that she cannot hear him discommended but she is ready to make answer therein and so she hath not been accustomed to do unless mrs ashley were touched whereunto she was very ready to make answer vehemently etc perry had probably the same merit of fidelity as mrs ashley for though turret says he was found faulty in his accounts he was not only continued at this time by his mistress in his office of cofferer, but raised afterwards to that of controller of the royal household, which he held till his death. A gentleman of the name of Harrington, then in the admiral's service, who was much examined respecting his master's intercourse with the princess, and revealed nothing, was subsequently taken by her into her own household, and highly favoured. And so certain did this gentleman, who was a man of parts, account himself of her tenderness for the memory of a lover snatched from her by the hand of violence alone, that he ventured, several years after her accession to the throne, to present her with a portrait of him, under which was inscribed the following sonnet, quote, Of person rare, strong limbs and manly shape, by nature framed to serve on sea or land, 
in friendship firm in good state or ill hap in peace headwise in war skill great bold hand on horse or foot in peril or in play none could excel though many did assay a subject true to king a servant great friend to god's truth and foe to rome's deceit sumptuous abroad for honour of the land temperate at home yet kept great state with stay and noble house that fed more mouths with meat than some advanced on higher steps to stand yet against nature reason and just laws his blood was spilt guiltless without just cause the fall of seymour and the disgrace and danger in which she had herself been involved afforded to elizabeth a severe but useful lesson and the almost total silence of history respecting her during the remainder of her brother's reign affords satisfactory indication of the extreme caution with which she now conducted herself this silence however is agreeably supplied by documents of a more private nature which inform us of her studies her acquirements the disposition of her time and the bent of her youthful mind the latin letters of her learned preceptor roger ascham abound with anecdotes of a pupil in whose proficiency he justly gloried and the particulars interspersed respecting other females of high rank also distinguished by the cultivation of classical literature enhance the interest of the picture by affording objects of comparison to the principal figure and illustrating the taste almost the rage for learning which pervaded the court of edward the sixth writing in fifteen fifty to his friend john sturmius the worthy and erudite rector of the protestant university of strasbourg ascham has the following passages quote, never was the nobility of england more lettered than at present our illustrious king edward in talent industry perseverance and erudition surpasses both his years and the belief of men i doubt not that france will also yield the just praise of learning to the duke of suffolk and the rest of that band of noble youths educated with the king in greek and latin literature who depart for that country on this very day numberless honourable ladies of the present time surpass the daughters of sir thomas more in every kind of learning but amongst them all my illustrious mistress the lady elizabeth shines like a star excelling them more by the splendour of her virtues and her learning than by the glory of her royal birth in the variety of her commendable qualities i am less perplexed to find matter for the highest panegyric than to circumscribe that panegyric within just bounds yet i shall mention nothing respecting her but what has come under my own observation for two years she pursued the study of greek and latin under my tuition but the foundations of her knowledge in both languages were laid by the diligent instruction of william grindal my late beloved friend and seven years my pupil in classical learning at cambridge from this university he was summoned by john cheke to court where he soon after received the appointment of tutor to this lady after some years when through her native genius aided by the efforts of so excellent a master she had made a great progress in learning and grindal by his merit and the favour of his mistress might have aspired to high dignities leaving a greater miss of himself in the court than i remember any other to have done these many years i was appointed to succeed him in his office and the work which he had so happily begun without my assistance indeed but not without some counsels of mine i diligently laboured to complete now however released from the throng of a court and restored to the felicity of my former learned leisure i enjoy through the bounty of the king an honourable appointment in this university the lady elizabeth has accomplished her sixteenth year and so much solidity of understanding such courtesy united with dignity have never been observed at so early an age she has the most ardent love of true religion and of the best kind of literature the constitution of her mind is exempt from female weakness and she is endued with a masculine power of application no apprehension can be quicker than hers no memory more retentive french and italian she speaks like english latin with fluency propriety and judgment 
She also spoke Greek with me, frequently, willingly, and moderately well. Nothing can be more elegant than her handwriting, whether in the Greek or Roman character. In music she is very skilful, but does not greatly delight. With respect to personal decoration, she greatly prefers a simple elegance to show and splendor, so despising the outward adorning of pleating the hair and of wearing of gold, that in the whole manner of her life she rather resembles Hippolyta than Phaedra. She read with me almost the whole of Cicero, and a great part of Livy. From these two authors, indeed, her knowledge of the Latin language has been almost exclusively derived. The beginning of the day was always devoted by her to the New Testament in Greek, after which she read select orations of Isocrates and the tragedies of Sophocles, which I judged best adapted to supply her tongue with the purest diction, her mind with the most excellent precepts, and her exalted station with a defence against the utmost power of fortune. For her religious instruction she drew first from the fountains of Scripture, and afterwards from St. Cyprian, the commonplaces of Melanson, and similar works which convey pure doctrine in elegant language. In every kind of writing she easily detected any ill-adapted or far-fetched expression. She could not bear those feeble imitators of Erasmus who bind the Latin language in the fetters of miserable proverbs. On the other hand, she approved a style chaste in its propriety, and beautiful by perspicuity, and she greatly admired metaphors when not too violent, and antitheses when just and happily opposed. By a diligent attention to these particulars, her ears became so practised and so nice that there was nothing in Greek, Latin, or English, prose or verse, which, according to its merits or defects, she did not either reject with disgust or receive with the highest delight. Had I more leisure, I would speak to you at greater length of the King, of the Lady Elizabeth, and of the daughters of the Duke of Somerset, whose minds have also been formed by the best literary instruction. But there are two English ladies whom I cannot omit to mention. Nor would I have you, my Sturmius, omit them, if you meditate any celebration of your English friends than which nothing could be more agreeable to me. One is Jane Grey, the other is Mildred Cecil, who understands and speaks Greek like English, so that it may be doubted whether she is most happy in the possession of this surpassing degree of knowledge, or in having had for her preceptor and father Sir Anthony Coke, whose singular erudition caused him to be joined with John Cheek in the office of tutor to the king, or finally in having become the wife of William Cecil, lately appointed Secretary of State. A young man, indeed, but mature in wisdom, and so deeply skilled both in letters and in affairs, and endued with such moderation in the exercise of public offices, that to him would be awarded by the consenting voice of Englishmen the fourfold praise attributed to Pericles by his rival Thucydides to know all that is fitting, to be able to apply what he knows, to be a lover of his country, and superior to money." The learned, excellent, and unfortunate Jane Grey is repeatedly mentioned by this writer with warm and merited eulogium. He relates to Sturmius that in the month of August 1550, taking his journey from Yorkshire to the court, he had deviated from his course to visit the family of the Marquis of Dorset at his seat of Broadgate in Leicestershire. Lady Jane was alone at his arrival, the rest of the family being on a hunting-party, and gaining admission to her apartment, he found her reading by herself the Phaedo of Plato in the original, which she understood so perfectly as to excite him in extreme wonder, for she was at this time under fifteen years of age. She also possessed the power of speaking and writing Greek, and she willingly promised to address to him a letter in this language. In his English work the schoolmaster, referring again to this interview with Jane Grey, Asham adds the following curious and affecting particulars. Having asked her how at her age she could have attained to such perfection both in philosophy and Greek, quote, I will tell you, said she, and tell you a truth which perchance you will marvel at. 
one of the greatest benefits that ever god gave me is that he sent me so sharp and severe parents and so gentle a schoolmaster for when i am in presence either of father or mother whether i speak keep silence sit stand or go eat drink be merry or sad be sewing playing dancing or doing anything else i must do it as it were in such weight measure and number even so perfectly as god made the world or else i am so sharply taunted so cruelly threatened yea presently sometimes with pinches nips and bobs and other ways which i will not name for the honour i bear them so without measure misordered that i think myself in hell till time come that i must go to mr elmer who teaches me so gently so pleasantly with such fair allurements to learning that i think all the time nothing while i am with him and when i am called from him i fall on weeping because whatsoever else i do but learning is full of grief trouble fear and whole misliking unto me and thus my book hath been so much my pleasure and bringeth daily to me more pleasure and more that in respect of it all other pleasures in very deed be but trifles and troubles unto me the epistles from which the extracts in the preceding pages are with some abridgment translated and which are said to be the first collection of private letters ever published by any englishman were all written during the year fifteen fifty when ascham on some disgust had quitted the court and returned to his situation of greek reader at cambridge and perhaps the eulogiums are here bestowed in epistles which his correspondent lost no time in committing to the press were not composed without the secret hope of their procuring for him a restoration to that court life which it seems difficult even for the learned to quit without a sigh it would be unjust however to regard ascham in the light of a flatterer for his praises are in most points corroborated by the evidence of history or by other concurring testimonies his observations for instance on the modest simplicity of elizabeth's dress and appearance at this early period of her life which might be received with some incredulity by the reader to whom instances are familiar of her inordinate love of dress at a much more advanced age and when the cares of a sovereign ought to have left no room for a vanity so puerile receive strong confirmation from another and very respectable authority dr elmer or aylmer who was tutor to lady jane grey and her sisters and became afterwards during elizabeth's reign bishop of london thus draws her character when young in a work entitled quote, a harbour for faithful subjects end quote. Quote, the king left her rich clothes and jewels and i know it to be true that in seven years after her father's death she never in all that time looked upon that rich attire and precious jewels but once and that against her will and that there never came gold or stone upon her head till her sister forced her to lay off her former soberness and bear her company in her glittering gayness and then she so wore it as every man might see that her body carried that which her heart misliked i am sure that her maidenly apparel which she used in king edward's time made the noblemen's daughters and wives to be ashamed to be dressed and painted like peacocks being more moved with her most virtuous example than with all that ever peter or paul wrote touching that matter yea this i know that a great man's daughter lady jane grey receiving from lady mary before she was queen good apparel of tinsel cloth of gold and velvet laid on with parchment lace of gold when she saw it said what shall i do with it mary said a gentlewoman wear it nay quoth she that were a shame to follow my lady mary against god's word and leave my lady elizabeth which followeth god's word and when all the ladies at the coming of the scots queen dowager mary of guise she who visited england in edward's time went with their hair frowns curled and double curled she altered nothing but kept her old maidenly shamefacedness this extract may be regarded as particularly curious as an exemplification of the rigid turn of sentiment which prevailed at the court of young edward and of the degree of which elizabeth conformed herself to it 
there is a print from a portrait of her when young in which the hair is without a single ornament and the whole dress remarkably simple but to return to ascham the qualifications of this learned man as a writer of classical latin recommended him to queen mary notwithstanding his known attachment to the protestant faith in the capacity of latin secretary and it was in the year fifteen fifty five while holding this station that he resumed his lessons to his illustrious pupil Quote, the lady elizabeth and i writes he to sturmius are reading together in greek the orations of Aeschines and demosthenes she reads before me and at first sight she so learnedly comprehends not only the idiom of the language and the meaning of the orator but the whole grounds of contention the degrees of the people and the customs and manners of the athenians as you would greatly wonder to hear under the reign of Elizabeth, Ascham retained his post of Latin secretary, and was admitted to considerable intimacy by his royal mistress. Addressing Sturmius, he says, quote, I received your last letters on the 15th of January, 1560. Two passages in them, one relative to the Scotch affairs, the other on the marriage of the Queen, induced me to give them to herself to read. She remarked and graciously acknowledged in both of them your respectful observance of her your judgment in the affairs of scotland as they then stood she highly approved and she loves you for your solicitude respecting us and our concerns the part respecting her marriage she read over thrice as i well remember and with somewhat of a gentle smile but still preserving a modest and bashful silence concerning that point indeed my sturmius i have nothing certain to write to you nor does any one truly know what to judge i told you rightly in one of my former letters that in the whole ordinance of her life she resembled not phaedra but hippolyta for by nature and not by the counsels of others she is thus averse and abstinent from marriage when i know anything for certain i will write it to you as soon as possible in the meantime i have no hopes to give you respect in the king of sweden in the same letter after enlarging somewhat too rhetorically perhaps on the praises of the queen and her government ascham recurs to his favourite theme her learning and roundly asserts that there were not four men in england distinguished either in the church or the state who understood more greek than her majesty and as an instance of her proficiency in other tongues he mentions that he was once present at court when she gave answers at the same time to three ambassadors the imperial the french and the swedish in italian in french and in latin and all this fluently without confusion and to the purpose a short epistle from queen elizabeth to sturmius which is inserted in this collection appears to refer to that of sturmius which ascham answers above she addresses him as her beloved friend expresses in the handsomest terms her sense of the attachment towards herself and her country evinced by so eminent a cultivator of genuine learning and true religion and promises that her acknowledgments shall not be confined to words alone but for a further explanation of her intentions she refers him to the bearer consequently we have no data for estimating the actual pecuniary value of these warm expressions of royal favour and friendship but we have good proof unfortunately that no munificent act of elizabeth's ever interposed to rescue her zealous and admiring preceptor from the embarrassments into which he was plunged probably indeed by his own imprudent habits but certainly by no faults which ought to have deprived him of his just claims on the purse of a mistress whom he had served with so much ability and with such distinguished advantage to herself the other learned females of this age whom ascham has complimented by addressing them in latin epistles are anne countess of pembroke sister of queen catherine parr a young lady of the name of vaughan jane grey and mrs clark a granddaughter of sir thomas more by his favourite daughter mrs roper in his letter to this last lady written during the reign of mary after congratulating her on her cultivation amid the luxury and dissipation of a court of studies worthy the descendant of a man whose high qualities had ennobled england in the estimation of foreign nations he proceeds to mention that he is the person whom several years ago 
her excellent mother had requested to undertake the instruction of all her children in greek and latin literature at that time he says no offer could tempt him to quit his learned retirement at cambridge and he was reluctantly compelled to decline the proposal but being now once more established at court he freely offers to a lady whose accomplishments he so much admires any assistance in her laudable pursuits which it may be in his power to afford a few more scattered notices may be collected relative to this period of the life of elizabeth her talents her vivacity her proficiency in those classical studies to which he was himself addicted and especially the attachment which she manifested to the reformed religion endeared her exceedingly to the young king her brother who was wont to call her perhaps with reference to the sobriety of dress and manners by which she was then distinguished his sweet sister temperance on her part his affection was met by every demonstration of sisterly tenderness joined to those delicate attentions and respectful observances which his rank required it was probably about fifteen fifty that she addressed to him the following letter on his having desired her picture which affords perhaps the most favourable specimen extant of her youthful style Quote, like as the rich man that daily gathereth riches to riches and to one bag of money layeth a great sort till it come to infinite so methinks your majesty not being sufficed with so many benefits and gentleness showed to me afore this time doth now increase them in asking and desiring where you may bid and command requiring a thing not worthy the desiring for itself but made worthy for your highness's request my picture i mean in which if the inward good mind toward your grace might as well be declared as the outward face and countenance shall be seen i would not have tarried the commandment but prevented it nor have been the last to grant but the first to offer it for the face i grant i might well blush to offer but the mind i shall never be ashamed to present but though from the grace of the picture the colours may fade by time may give by weather may be spited by chance yet the other nor time with her swift wings shall overtake nor the misty clouds with their lowering may darken nor chance with her slippery foot may overthrow of this also yet the proof could not be great because the occasions have been so small notwithstanding as a dog hath a day so may i perchance have time to declare it in deeds which now i do write them but in words and further i shall humbly beseech your majesty that when you shall look on my picture you will wit safe to think that as you have but the outward shadow of the body afore you so my inward mind wisheth that the body itself were oftener in your presence howbeit because both my so being i think could do your majesty little pleasure though myself great good and again because i see not as yet the time agreeing thereunto i shall learn to follow this saying of horace feras non culpes quod vitari non potest and thus i will troubling your majesty i fear end with my most humble thanks beseeching god long to preserve you to his honour to your comfort to the realm's profit and to my joy from hatfield this fifteenth day of may your majesty's most humble sister and servant elizabeth an exact memorialist has preserved an instance of the high consideration now enjoyed by elizabeth in the following passage which is further curious as an instance of the state which she already assumed in her public appearances Quote, march seventeenth fifteen fifty one the lady elizabeth the king's sister rode through london unto st james the king's palace with a great company of lords knights and gentlemen and after her a great company of ladies and gentlemen on horseback about two hundred on the nineteenth she came from st james's through the park to the court the way from the park gate unto the court spread with fine sand she was attended with a very honourable confluence of noble and worshipful persons of both sexes and received with much ceremony at the court gate the ensuing letter however seems to intimate that there were those about the young king who envied her these tokens of favour and credit and were sometimes but too successful in estranging her from the royal presence and perhaps in exciting prejudices against her 
it is unfortunately without date of year Quote, the princess elizabeth to king edward the sixth like as a shipman in stormy weather plucks down the sails tarrying for better wind so did i most noble king in my unfortunate chance of thursday pluck down the high sails of my joy and comfort and do trust one day that as troublesome waves have repulsed me backward so a gentle wind will bring me forward to my haven two chief occasions moved me much and grieved me greatly the one for that i doubted your majesty's health the other because for all my long tarrying i went without that i came for of the first i am relieved in a part both that i understood of your health and also that your majesty's lodging is far from my lord marquis's chamber of my other grief i am not eased but the best is that whatsoever other folks will suspect i intend not to fear your grace's good will which as i know that i never deserve to faint so i trust will still stick by me for if your grace's advice that i should return whose will is a commandment had not been i would not have made the half of my way the end of my journey and thus as one desirous to hear of your majesty's health though unfortunate to see it i shall pray god to preserve you from hatfield this present saturday your majesty's humble sister to commandment elizabeth End, quote. End of section 6.